Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Benedict Evans, and he is a partner at the famed uh, technology venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, Andreessen Horowitz, perhaps known to the uh, aficionado as A16Z. Um, I have actually some swag from Andreessen Horowitz. I have a blue A16Z hat, which matches my car, and I just leave that in the car um, when I'm driving around trying to look cool to a very select group of tech geeks. Um, if you are at all interested in the development of technology, of ecosystems, of of autonomous everything, of smart this, of uh, really where the puck is going to be, the, the future of technology, you will find this to be a fascinating conversation. He absolutely has an encyclopedic knowledge of what's taken place and why, and has tremendous insight into the likely direction that uh, this space is going. So with no further ado, my conversation with Andreessen Horowitz's Benedict Evans. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Benedict Evans. He is a partner at the legendary venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, where he works as an analyst and does a weekly consumer newsletter, blog, what have you, covering everything from mobile platforms to AI to autonomous everything. He is also a recommended follow. He began his career as an equity analyst in investment banking, moving on to strategy and business development at such August firms as Orange and NBC Universal. Benedict Evans, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. Do do you prefer Benedict or Ben? Well, Benedict is better SEO. Okay, <laughs> for sure. Um, there is an advantage to having an unusual first or last name exactly. for SEO purposes. I'm convinced if my name was Barry Smith, no one would know who I am. But we can talk about SEO uh, a little later. So you graduate Cambridge in 1998, yep. right in the midst of the dot-com and technology boom, not too uh, long before the bust. What was it like coming out into the banking world in the midst of, of that era? Well, so I actually joined uh, an equity capital markets team. So we were doing te European tech IPOs in 99. And so for about nine months, I thought, oh, this is going to be a fun career. Right. How, this is easy. You just <laughs> yeah, yeah, throw yeah. it out there and everybody buys it. Yeah. And yeah it's you, up 10x. You issue some random thing and a sovereign wealth fund puts in an order for 3x the float. 
And then in about well, early spring of 2000, everything started going down. And we sort of forget now that it, we, we talk about the dot-com bubble, but you know, particularly in Europe, there was also a mobile bundle. There was also a mobile bubble, and there was also the, the fixed-line broadband fiber bubble. So you kind of had three bubbles that kind of had happened more or less independently for different reasons and kind of merged and combined into one enormous thing. I, I and would, then, it went, then the market went down for three years. I, I would argue you had a semiconductor bubble, you had a software bubble, you had a hardware bubble, you had a storage bubble. It all started a bandwidth bubble. In, in the U.S., we had fiber optic and telecom bubble. Well, you had a, you, you had a tech bubble, but you also had a mobile bubble, mm-hmm. which you, very only for very distant reasons was happening at the same time, but was happening at the same time. And then there was a the fiber bubble. And yes, yeah, so they all combined and we got this enormous kind of explosion and then an enormous pop and the market went down without stopping more or less for three years. So were you always a tech guy or, or did you, was your background more finance or something or well, none so of the I, above? So I did my degree in history, mm-hmm. which is really an analytic subject. So here is a bunch of information. Try and work out something interesting or meaningful or si- insightful to say about it or something original and interesting to say about it. And so I went from that into sort of fairly conventional route into investment banking mm-hmm. um, and sort of quickly decided that ECM was kind of project management and whereas research was probably something I was likely to be better at. And so I went into equity research and I did, did, did um, so I went and did my European mobile stocks for a couple of years. And that was in London or New in, York? In London. Uh, and did you did you spend any time in New York, or did you go straight London to uh, well, I was Silicon up, Valley? Uh, no. So, I mean, I, I came to New York for work. I, so I worked for NBC Universal, so I used to come over here. Um, but no, the first time I actually worked properly in the States was to go to work for A16Z. Mm-hmm. Oh, so London with really just brief sojourns in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I worked for Orange, so I went to Paris, and I mm-hmm. worked for NBC Universal, so I, I came to New York. But um, that, my job was, was all, jobs were always in London. And so you're covering telecom stocks, you're covering mobile, you're covering a lot of the technology-related space. Mm. As an analyst, what was that like in the midst of wild overvaluation and collapsing share price? So it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple of different things there. One of them is it's interesting in hindsight to, to look at them in hindsight, in that they were the go-go, growth-exciting, dynamic, sexy, disruptive companies. I mean, mm-hmm. Mobile had gone from nothing in 1990 to, oh my God, everyone on earth is going to have one of these things. And they were really kind of, they thought of themselves as pirates. Mm-hmm. And That's they connected everybody, and that was it. And, you know, there's, obviously there's still a lot of stuff going on in emerging markets, but like everyone in Europe got a phone and that was it. And then they went from being amazing. They went from being Google to being water companies in like a year uh-huh. or two years. I'm really? Kind of really exaggerating fast. for effect. But so you look at the um, all the stuff we do on our smartphones now, this was all kind of in concept videos and presentations from the mobile operators in like 97, 98, 99. You were going to do all of this stuff and they were going to do it all. And of course it all happened, but it wasn't done by them. And so that perspective of how you, you of, of kind of, I think there's a lot of echoes of that. For example, if you look at cars now, mm-hmm. you have this all this futurology of what's going to happen and what cars will be and how everything will change. And you have kind of the renderings of the glass cars, which is like the renderings of the glass phones in 2000 mm-hmm. when there were no phones with color screens. And you think, well, you might get like three quarters of this right. But like the last quarter of it is going to be where all the money is. And that's the difference between it being Nokia and Microsoft and it being companies you've never heard of like Apple and Samsung and Google or forgotten like Apple. Um, And no one had ever heard of Google. And so it's interesting to look back and think, how did we think about what was going to happen then? And how much of it was right and wrong? And what would you have had to have said then in order to get it right? So you're describing a form of historical futurism. Because when we've what we've seen over the years is 
expectations of the future turn out to be wildly either over-optimistic or pessimistic, but rarely right on the nose. Is that a fair assessment? I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, as I said, I think there's sort of several bits, there's, there's sort of several lessons you can learn from like, not so much to drop the bubble per se, but the kind of the way people thought about it. And so there was this whole idea in the early 90s of the thing, this thing called the information superhighway, right? <laughs> which the whole, just the name conveys the fact that it was going to be kind of centrally controlled and it would be the cable company and News Corporation and mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox and the New York Times. And they would kind of get together every six months and decide what you were going to have. And, of and course, how did what, that work out? And of course, what we had instead was permissionless innovation and the open internet, and there was no central authority, and anyone could do what they wanted in, in, to, to some extent. And so that is interesting to compare that now with the way we, for example, people talk about cars or the way people talk about sort of what's happening to TV now. Um, I think the the kind of the but the, as I just said, the fact that you could have got you could have guessed like eighty or ninety percent of it, and it still have missed the important parts is also fascinating. Like you could have said in nineteen in two thousand, okay, everyone will have one of these things. Everyone will have internet on their phone. It will be a real operating system and not a feature phone. It will be open internet. Um, therefore, it will not be the carriers. That would have con- described today's world perfectly. But you would have still have said, well, then it'll be Microsoft and Nokia that do that. What's amazing is there was this AT&T commercial I very vividly remember. I think Tom Selleck did the voiceover, mm. and he talks about what the future will be like. And I think the punchline yeah, was, get on the beach. you will. <laughs> and it turned out to be dead right, except for the fact that AT&T has almost nothing to do with it. Exactly. I mean, one of the ways I describe this when I talk to telcos now is it's as though a municipal water company looked at the mineral water business, and they said, you know, come on. We've got brand, we've got water, we've got trust. You wouldn't buy water from a company you don't trust. You know, we should be doing Never this. Never heard of. <laughs> and they hire McKinsey and Wolf Hollins and they build the whole thing. And like two years later, their first pallet of water rolls into Walmart and it goes onto the shelves and they look at it next year, the 200 brands. And they think, hang on a second, there's something not quite right here. <laughs> um, so how did you go from working in London or Paris as a telecom analyst to, I know, I'm going to move... 6,000 miles away and become a Imagineer. Well, I just ask them for a job. I don't know why people say it's hard to get a job in venture. You know, you go, you ask them for a job, they say yes. You know, okay. That's it. Yeah, it was easy. Well, how, so, how did you, how did you, well, how so, did you first hear of Andrew so, so Well, so there's a process here. And as, as, as I mentioned, I actually did my degree in history, which is analysis. And so the question was sort of picking up and looking for things where you can apply that to analysis. And so I left university and became a sales side analyst. Mm-hmm. And as sort of many people will know that for many various reasons, stopped being a fun thing to do or even a thing that anyone could do. So I think when I was in telecoms, Merrill Lynch Europe had something like 50 um, European telecoms analysts. And the last time I looked, I think they had less than half a dozen. So that industry has ceased to be fun. And so I left and went and worked in strategy, first at Orange and then at um, NBC Universal and Channel 4, um, again, both in London. So from sort of sitting on the outside in, sitting on the inside out, trying to work out what we do and how do we, how do we understand this. And it's kind of interesting because the kind of the questions change and suddenly you've got a spreadsheet that lists all the stuff you've been trying to work out from the, from the public financials, but then you're just trying to work out different stuff. But the processes, the thought process is the same. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a while. Um, I left 
left NBC Universal the week that General Electric's share price fell 50%, which is obviously a direct causal relationship. Right, right. Sometimes, you know, things happen and yep. you could just draw a straight line from A to B. Exactly. I recall seeing the Wall Street Journal piece, Benelik Evans departs NBC Universal, GE stock got in half. Exactly. Um, it went up by half the, the, the same amount the next week, of course. <laughs> Um, so I left. So then, when was and that? Then, uh, that? That was, was after the financial. No, crisis. that was in the financial crisis. Oh, it was. Okay. So yeah, so but that's, uh, that's sort of an, an, an old and boring story of what happened there. Um, and then I went as a, I worked as a consultant in London. So I was doing a lot of sort of strategy consultancy and sort of research, producing research reports for um, around the European media and telecom space. And so I was writing both about kind of what's happening in fashion magazines and, you know, record retail and DVD retail, but also, you know, what are Google and Facebook doing? What's happening with smartphones? And so I started a blog. And more or less the same time I went on Twitter at that time, which was kind of new. And so you could, it was quite easy to get noticed if you were doing stuff. Right. And I was kind of writing stuff. The way I describe it is basically I would write stuff that a sell-side analyst or a senior strategy person or someone at Apple could write, except that either they couldn't public it, publish it right. or they would be writing for a very different audience. They'd be writing for, you know, buy, sell, hold audience or... Mm. Um, or they wouldn't have the analytic background to write it. So like a sell-side analyst could write this stuff, but they're writing for a different audience. A senior person at a company knows all of this stuff, but they're not used to writing stuff and they can't publish it anyway. Somebody at McKinsey knows all this stuff, but they're not allowed to say that's not going to work. <laughs> um, so it was kind of an interesting kind of kind of niche in the Venn diagram, kind of little segment on your Venn diagram of somebody who had an analytic and strategy background, was used to writing about this stuff and explaining it, could say it in public um, at a time when very, very few other people were doing it. And so for those reasons, um, I sort of got noticed. And, you know, I spent like two or three years writing blog posts and getting like 100 page views a month. And then I went through a period where I was getting a couple of thousand page views a day. Um, mm. And that sort of happened in the course of 2013. And, and then, then and I kind of picked up my, my bag and thought, well, what else do I want to do? What do I want to do next? Where could I deploy this? And, you know, you, you have those conversations at various stages in your life. And I thought, well, I should go and do you do this in venture capital and where's the place to go and do venture capital and you know the global cluster is san francisco and what was the kind of firm where it felt like this kind of innovative approach to explaining things and adding value in public would work and a16z was sort of at the top of that list mm -hmm. and you reached out to them as opposed to vice yeah so i got um, a couple of introductions i went in and i said well sort of this is sort of what i do is there a place for this in this firm does this fit within the firm is this useful and they kind of said yeah just like that? More or less. <laughs> so um, lots of other pe bloggers should be inundating A16Z with their resumes and saying, look, I've been doing this well, also. I don't, think I don't think you need a resume. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if, if, if you want a sales job, you should be able to get the meeting. If you can't get the meeting, you shouldn't have a sales job. And it's kind of the same. You, know, you prove that you can do the job by doing it. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So the, the focus that you have today is no longer telecom the way it was, but certainly the concept of mobility as a source of um, possible changes in, in technology is a key factor. What do you focus on these days? Well, I think talking about mobile now is a bit like talking about PCs 10 years ago. Right. Like, yes, this is the center of everything, but it's happened. Right. And so we're not arguing about iOS versus Android or whether everyone's going to have one of these things or apps versus the web or all of those kind of things. Those are not interesting conversations anymore. It's like arguing, you know, is everybody get onto, going to get onto the web? Well, yes. Now what? Next question. Right. So you look, for, so there's one answer is, well, what are the next questions? What are the next kind of mega trends that are happening? The second is, there's a lot of conversation around what happens with that stuff. 
what happens with the stuff that we already had. So 10 years ago, what do we do with broadband and browsers? So well, let's talk about search, let's talk about social, let's talk about what happens once everyone has a PC. Now what happens once everyone has a smartphone and everyone is on Facebook? So we have those kinds of conversations about the world, the world that we've just built, what happens with that? And then we think, well, what are the next things? So machine learning, autonomous cars, mixed reality, cryptocurrency. What are the next fundamental trends that will shape the tech industry the way first the PC and then mobile shaped the tech industry in the last 20 or 30 years? I think then within that, there's a kind of, you know, for what I try and do, there's a question of looking for the arguments or looking for the questions. So what are the places where there's an on the one hand, on the other hand, is it going to look like this or is it going to look more like that? Are there going to be winner tech? Not will there be autonomous cars? Yes. Not will it be in 15 or 20 years? I, who knows? Don't know. It's more like, are there going to be winner-takes-all effects in this? Is it going to look like Android or is it going to look like ABS where there's like a widget that everyone buys and it doesn't matter? Is what's going to happen in mixed reality? Is this going to be something that's going to be every hardware manufacturer or is it going to be super concentrated? How do we think about machine learning? How do we try and understand what that might change inside big companies? And so kind of there's like, what are the topics? And then how do we work out what the kind of the useful questions to talk about might be within that? So you're less extrapolating current trends out into some future date and instead thinking about, well, here's where we are. Several steps beyond that, what are going to be the, the subsequent uh, developments that this might lead to? You're really several steps ahead. I think that's right. I mean, that's partly a consequence of the, the state of the industry. So like five years ago, Okay, what's it was a horse race. Who's going to win? But is it you know Apple and Google? What's going to happen? Is Apple going to survive even though Android has got this open story and this open source story and so on? So is there going to be room for Apple? Is there going to be room for a third entrant? What will happen to BlackBerry? Will BlackBerry killing on in a niche? Will Windows Phone be able to break in? So all of that was it was the moderating. I'm sorry, Windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, well. I don't I don't recall that. Yeah, it's vaguely, yeah, that's, it's a painful subject for some people. <laughs> so there's so it was a horse race. Steve thing. Steve Ballmer in particular. Yeah, yeah, he threw chairs. Um, <laughs> but that was you were you were calling the plays. That is that the American phrase. You were, you were sure. trying to work out what was going on. Now you're not. That's we know what happened, and we don't have those kind of day by day tactical questions around autonomous cars because like there aren't any autonomous cars. We don't have those kind of day, day by day questions around mixed reality because you can't buy a mixed reality headset yet or right. have mixed reality glasses yet. So the character of the question changes because we're at a different point in the S-curve. Basically, when the S-curve is going near vertical, then you're trying to work out, oh my God, what's going on? You know, is the rocket ship going to blow up? When is it going to start flattening out? Where we are now is we've got the old S-curve has flattened out right at the top of the, of the scale, and we're talking about what you can build on top of it. And the new S-curves are kind of under the radar, if I can mix my metaphors. One of the ways I describe this is kind of a good Manhattan metaphor. It's like you walk past a construction site every day for six months, and there's a bunch of construction workers kind of standing around, scratching their backsides, not doing anything. You think, oh, these guys are lazy. Then you walk past on Monday morning, and they put 15 stories of steel frame right. up, and you think, wow, they're really busy over the weekend. <laughs> You're missing the slow, exactly. gradual improvement. And then there's a period at the end where they're like putting the facade on and doing all the fit out, and again, that looks sort of boring. And so mobile is at the stage where, you know, you're putting the facade on and you're doing the fit out. And the other stuff is still kind of hole in the ground and you can't really see what's going on. Um, and so that means the character of the questions change. In the early stages of investments, there, there is no data. There's no discounted cash flow model. You're really dealing with two founders and a PowerPoint presentation and some numbers, which are more or less best guesses. 
Yeah, so the way I, it's an interesting shift in being an equity analyst because you're right at one end of the risk reward profile. You know, if you're town of buying T bills is at the other end. Right. You're at the stage where half of the deals you do will return less than invested capital, and that's the plan. Right. And 5% will produce more than a 10x return. And that gets you a kind of a 3x return over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so everything you do has to be capable of being amazing. And if it's capable of going from two people in a PowerPoint to being an amazing thing worth hundreds of millions of billions of dollars, it kind of has to be implausible and crazy. And there have to be a bunch of reasons why it might not work. And therefore, what you have to do is sort of suspend disbelief and not think here are all the reasons why this might not work. But what if this did work? What would it be? And are these the people who can make that happen? Which is a very, very different approach than thinking about, all right, will this new widget or this new management team or whatever sell enough to move the earnings per share calculus mm. of this publicly traded company? Exactly. I think the, the kind of the key way to think about Silicon Valley is it's a machine for running experiments. Mm -hmm. And most of the experiments won't work, and that's the plan. And yes, you know, you might, you know, you could do some an experiment that's clearly a terrible idea and it was never going to work and you could kind of mess it up and blow up your lab and, you know, people will look down on you for that. But no one will look down on you for the fact that you ran an experiment and it produced a negative result. That was just, okay, well, we tried and did you do the, did you run the experiment right? That's a different question. Mm -hmm. But you ran the experiment, it didn't work. Okay, that's fine. And the ones that do work justify the whole exercise and pay for the whole exercise and produce mobile phones or produce Apple and Google and so on. So let, let's, let's zoom in on that a little bit. When you're at this side of the funnel, when you're looking at these really early stage companies, if half of them are effectively money losers for you, for the firm as an investment, how do you conceptualize what you're looking at? Is it, is it the founders themselves? Is it the idea? Is it something that, hey, this is just so crazy it might work? What What is the thought process like when, especially where you sit, where there's an endless stream of people coming to Silicon Valley to pitch ideas to VCs? Well, so I think most venture capitalists look at this stuff mostly in the same way. You can argue a little bit about emphasis, mm -hmm. um, but there is the question of what is the market opportunity here? And um, are these the people who are going to be able to work out, find, discover that market opportunity? Because inevitably, it's not going to be exactly the original idea. It's going to be something sort of adjacent to that. You'll mm -hmm. kind of twist around and find it. Pivot, shall we uh, say? Not so much that, more iterate, I would say. Pivot okay. is more like, okay, we built a whole company on that premise and that didn't work at all. So now let's try something else. Mm -hmm. um, that's not really the same thing. It's more kind of, well, we, we were kind of that and we sort of moved around. We got, we made, we found it work. There's this whole um, sort of concept in Silicon Valley, a product market fit. Uh -huh. And so you have sort of a product and you're trying to work out, well, what the market be and what would the product be around this space until we can find something that meshes and takes off. And so the earlier you are, the more, in a sense, you're betting on the ability of the founders to find that. But you're also betting on, is this a great market? And is there some angle or some way that they're going to find in order to, make, in order to turn this into a thing? So what, what I'm hearing from you is future growth prospects are 90% and valuation is well, nothing? So, well, so 
Um, it depends. Okay. Um, but the more progress you make and the more numbers you have, the more that you start looking at metrics and the less that you start thinking about potential. Um, so at sort of the super, super early stage, then the valuations all tend to look the same. Mm-hmm. Um, as you go further in, then you start getting much more specific about, well, how well are they doing and what do we think this looks like? Um, then it gets sort of gets kind of case by case. And, you know, you get up to a company that's got billions of dollars of revenue and then you're doing DCFs and you're doing multiples like anybody else. But at the super early stage, in a sense, doing a DCF on two people with a PowerPoint is just an exercise in self-deception. Sure. You could do a DC, you could you could sort of say, well, if they manage to sell this thing to two billion people, well, there'll be some value there. <laughs> Trying to do a DCF on that, well, okay, what does that get me? It doesn't you, tell me anything. You're just making up numbers. At that yeah, point. and the things that really work, um, in a sense, it doesn't kind of matter if this is, you know, if you've got, you know, take, give me kind of a hypothetical, a hypothetical example. If you've got a $50 million seed fund and you make a significant investment in something that turns out to be worth $50 billion, does it really matter if it's worth $40 billion or $60 billion? The amount well, forty re- or sixty to start. Million the amount, start. the amount that it's returned your fund is, is is sufficient that those numbers don't really make any difference. Mm-hmm. So, so that that's really fascinating. And and Mark Andreessen, when when we sat down and had a conversation, said something similar. But looking back at a perspective of twenty years of doing this, and if you go back, and if he would have paid double for everything. It wouldn't mean any difference whatsoever. Yeah, I think there was, there's an, a famous investor whose name, I think, was, I think I actually think it was somebody in Hollywood, a sort of famous producer who said something like, if I'd said yes to all the ones I said no to, and no to all the ones I'd said yes to, I'd have come out in exactly the same place. <laughs> so there's always, you know, this is kind of the index, indexing story. There's always, you can always kind of push these arguments and say, well, then we should just, nobody knows anything. And there's a little bit more to it than that. Let's talk a little bit about technology. You you have a quote I really like. You have several quotes I really like. Um, and let's start with uh, one or two of these and see where they go. All social apps grow until you need a news feed. All news, news feeds grow until you need an algorithm. All algorithmic feeds grow until you get fed up seeing the wrong stuff and leave for a new app with less information overload. So is the nature of all tech rinse, lather, repeat, and and something becomes... An incumbent becomes successful, and the new guys are just going to come up and eat their lunch. So I have notes for a blog post in my phone, which is called something like um, technology determinism. Mm -hmm. And so there are, as it might be, half a dozen things which are just steady processes, and there are half a dozen things that are cycles. So steady process, the most obvious one would be Moore's Law. Uh Um, There is a process of technology moves from research labs to startups to big companies. Um, You you can imagine like kind of half a dozen of those. Um, Then there are cycles. And so there are cycles where you go from bundling to unbundling. You go from the client to the server and back again. Uh-huh. You go from... Um, In the public markets, we had conglomerates and then deconglomerization uh, and then reconglomerization. Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, I have a colleague who, at Stephen Sanofsky who used to run office. He says, all products expand until they can edit photographs. That's very funny. Like Word can edit photographs. Excel and, can edit photographs. And all products expand until they can edit that, photos. That's the end point of, of software. Yeah. And so there were kind of, there, you know, and it's a comment about you know, feature creep or whatever it is you want to say. And so there were these kind of inevitable processes or inevitable pieces of logic that kind of flow through. Now, the one that you were sort of quoted particularly was sort of an observation about, um, actually, I wrote a blog post about this last week. It's sort of a combination of, of Dunbar's number and Zuckerberg's law. Uh-huh. Dunbar's number is like, you know, like 150 or 200 people right. well enough that you would friend them on Facebook. 
at the very least. And you've got these social apps which make it easy to post stuff and share stuff. And because it's one to many, you're not emailing it to someone or texting it to someone, you can post quite a lot because you don't feel like you're kind of imposing on people to do that. But you've got 200 friends and they post five things a day. Okay, now you've got a thousand things a day in your newsfeed and you can't read those. And so this is the logic that gets Facebook to producing what is, you know, what's called an algorithmic feed, which is just like engineers speak for, let's try and work out which of your friends we care about. And maybe we should put those at the top. And let's work out that you like these kind of things. You don't really like news stories from The Guardian. You prefer to look at pictures of babies. So let's put the babies in front of the news stories from The Guardian. And you kind of, you, you kind of, you come up and you create that. And so now you've got, instead of, so to speak, a random sample, which is I open the app, what have people posted in the last hour? Because I'm not going to scroll past the last right. hour's worth of posts. So actually it's random. The random point factor being what time did I open the app? So that's the, the linear feed. The chronological feed is random. So then you say, well, maybe we should put the stuff that's important at the beginning. But then you think, okay, but it's now you're arguing, well, why isn't The Guardian or The New York Times at the top? That should be up at the top because that's important. There's a public benefit to that. And you got this wrong. My friend posted this thing I wanted to see and I didn't see it. And so you get that sense of, well, maybe this isn't actually working. And you have Russians trying to game it. And you have all sorts of problems with trying to make that feed work. And so then, you, then you can say, well, actually, what I want to do is if I really care about this stuff and I want people to see it, I'll send them a text message. I'll do it on WhatsApp. I'll do it in Facebook Messenger. But then I've got 15 parallel conversations or 20 parallel conversations with people. And then we start creating WhatsApp groups where 20 people from school or can work and all talk to each other. And then everyone is like posting more and more stuff. And you think, I really like to have a screen in this app that just showed me like the important stuff from all of these chats that I would see it. And maybe that should be sorted by which are the ones that I want to see. And so like you kind of create the same process over and over again. Now, this is an opinion. This may be entirely be wrong. This is, may not be how it works. But you can certainly sort of see that problem that if you create tools that let everyone you've ever met share anything they've ever, they've ever been interested in, then you're not going to be able to read it all. Well, this leads me to uh, the very related quote, 50% of Facebook's engineering effort goes to stuffing more noise into your news feed, and the other 50% is working on ways to filter it out. Yeah, well, it's another expression of the same point. There's this, there's this classic joke in, I read in a, in a book by Castiglione, which is that um, somebody's dug a hole to build a, uh, to build, create the foundation, to build, put up a building. And they ask their friend, what shall I do with all this earth that's come out of the hole? And their friend says, well, just dig another hole and put it in that. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, it's just not going to work like that. You can't do it like that. And if you've created a system that lets anybody you've ever met send you anything that they feel like sending, then you're not going to be able to see it all. And there's not like some magic algorithm that's going to make that work. You're only ever going to have a sample. So I want to talk to you about some of your favorite technologies and, and future projects. Do we want to discuss at all what's been going on with Facebook uh, this year and everything from Russian bots to the um, just changes uh, with Cambridge Analytics and scraping? Well, I, first, I, first of all, I want to say that um, Oxford Analytics is actually not nearly as good as Cambridge Analytics. Okay. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> little little alma mater joke. But how much – I'm kind of surprised at how shocked people are about this. <clears throat> Full disclosure, I have not been a Facebook heavy user ever. I chafed at everything they've ever asked me to give them. They don't have my real birthday. They don't have my real phone. They don't have my real email address. They don't have my real anything. So anyone who wants to scrape other than where I went to college, where I went to grad school, and and a couple of jobs I've worked at that are public, they could scrape what they want from me. They're, they're getting nothing. 
But I think this whole headache was readily foreseeable by anyone who who forget reading Facebook's terms of use. No, you're not entitled to any of that private information. I'm not sharing that with you. I'll find what I what I'm interested in my own. Or am I just outside of their demographic? I'm an old fogey and so that's that. So I think there's a bunch of kind of unresolved feeling about Facebook. Mm-hmm. Is it private or public? If I post stuff in the news feed, will my friends see it or not? What does that mean? Do I want to share? Do I want to share this stuff or not? And like we sort of understand that if you search on Google for something, it'll show you or try to show you what you asked for, even if it's something you shouldn't have searched for. Mm-hmm. We don't really feel like if I, my racist uncle posts that story on Facebook, should I see it or not? And how do we think about that? We well, sort of think, well, if you like it or repost but, it, but we also clearly. think we also sort of think, well, maybe Facebook shouldn't be showing that at the top of the list. And we thought, well, it is my he is my uncle, and he did post it. So we have a bunch of sort of. I don't think we have a clear sentiment about. Put it uh, other extreme. We are confident that our bank. We are comfortable with the fact that our banks know how much money we have. For sure, we're comfortable that our mobile operators know where our phone is, and that there's a kind of a legal apparatus around that that means that if the police need to know, then they can find out. But it's just not available to anybody. I think we sort of have that feeling around Google, mostly. I don't think we have like a resolved feeling around Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this particular story is sort of fascinating because of how many pieces that, of there, there are to that. So Facebook creates this developer platform that allows you to install an app that can access your information and also access information about your friends. And there's a sort of a bunch of reasons why that would be useful. Like I want to sure. create in a, a calendar entry or I want to, you know, I want to see who else is using this app. Um, and a, a large part of like the advocacy around the tech industry was walled gardens are bad, Facebook is bad because it's closed. People be, need to be able to get their information out. You need to be able, other people need to be able to use this to innovate. So there was this whole sort of ideological argument um, that Facebook would be evil for not doing this, and Facebook needed to do this. So you create this platform. Um, it turns out that people are able to exploit that and do stuff with it that was not really anticipated. You, you think it's not anticipated? Because from my perspective, I look at it as by design, that's well, what so it's supposed get, to okay, be. Okay, so yes and no. So let's, get, let's go to an analogy. So do you remember word macroviruses? Um, sure, oh, okay. absolutely. So Office is supposed to be an open development environment. The people suing them for antitrust are suing them for making it closed and hard for third parties to work with. So they create all these APIs and they create this whole macro language. One of the things on page 15 of the textbook is you can make a macro run when you open the document. Page 48 of the textbook, you can get it to look at your email addresses. Page 72, you can get it to send an email. Okay, so I get an email, a Word document, I open it, it emails a copy of itself to everyone in my address book. Ah. Okay, that's not what we expected. Right. But clearly, but a, but but clearly a, that is not its intended purpose. It's not its intended purpose, exactly. But all of the individual APIs were there. And so you've got this period for Microsoft where they're thinking, okay, so are we supposed to not have macros? Are we supposed to be closed now? How do we think about this? And they had to go through this like 180 degree turn as they went from thinking we should make it as easy as possible for anybody to do this mm-hmm. to what would happen if it's going to moderate my language. What would happen if a bad person uh-huh. 
um, what my seven-year-old would call a dingly head, right. decided to read the textbook. Because it's not like they found bugs in it. They're doing stuff that was in the textbook, that was in the manual, but you weren't expecting them to use them in those ways. And I think there's a very strong parallel there with what this Cambridge Analytica was doing, which was you were able to install an app. The app can get your information. The app, app can ask for your friend's information. If you say yes, it will get your friend's information. Yeah, but we didn't expect that people would use that to exfiltrate 80 million people's profiles just as we didn't expect someone would make a word document that could email a copy of itself to a million people so now so now let me i'm going to go toe-to-toe on technology with you which is clearly a mistake on my part but microsoft notorious for having all these weak security setups and easily exploitable that is such a foreseeable issue Granted, there's a little bit of hindsight bias on my part. It's foreseeable in hindsight. Right. But, you know, Microsoft is is home of the exploitable security era. My relationship with Amazon and with Apple is that I pay them for stuff and I expect a different level of trust and a different level of, hey, I'm already giving you money. Don't exploit my personal data for other reasons. Well, let me me give you a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Um, You can install an app on your smartphone. It can pop up a box and ask for your friends. And there's an awful lot of sensible reasons, like you're playing a game, Who else? which of your friends are playing the game? You've right. installed a Instagram, who are your friends so you can follow them? Like really, Uber really, asks if you want to split a fare yeah, with somebody, of, can we access your contact Really list? basic logical reasons why mm-hmm. you wanted to do that. Okay, so that app has just downloaded 600 people's um, home addresses. Is that a breach? Well, uh, has it downloaded their email address or, or their, their home address? address? So or have in? they looked at the home address and then said well, so it needs, people uh, well, in this so, space? So second order question, it needs their email address or their phone number to work. That's uh-huh. the idea. There's, there is no other identifier. Right. So it's got 600 people's email addresses. Okay, is that a breach of privacy? Is that Apple's fault? Well, maybe. A little bit, yeah. I would say it is a little bit. But it's not, but Apple popped up this, said, here is this capability. Apple pops up the thing, do you want this app to to have your address or not? And there's sort of a point where it's not kind of black and white. It's not like somebody hacked into Google and gave them your email. And so I think Facebook has been sort of, they have this record of pushing this thing to the kind of the outer envelope. for the last 15 years. And I think what's happened here, slightly ironically, because they actually closed off all of these APIs like a couple of years ago. Right. So sort of what happened is like the stable door was open. If you were a developer, if you were in tech, if you went to the developer event, they stood up on stage and said, hey, look, we leave our stable doors, doors open so you can do all this stuff. Isn't this great? And their door, stable doors were open for like five years. And then they're going, eh, maybe this isn't a good idea. We're going to close the door now. And a bunch of people said, oh, evil Facebook. You shouldn't close the doors. You should allow free open access. And now here we are in 2018 and people go, wow, a load of people went into the stable and stole all the horses. What a shocker. And Facebook are like, yeah, but <laughs> like we knew the doors were open. <laughs> so there's a bunch of you can kind of see this as they try and work out how we talk about this. How do we think about this stuff? We have been speaking with Benedict Evans of Andreessen Horowitz. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things technology. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to the podcast. Benedict, thank you so much for doing this. uh, you're, You're talking about stuff that I really find endlessly fascinating including um, the responsibility of Facebook to either have an open platform and what that risk entails or to control their own APIs and control who access what from your um, feed. What nobody is talking about, and by the time this airs, he will have, uh, Mark Zuckerberg will have already um, done his congressional testimony, but... um, there's still a tremendous amount of responsibility on the individual user who willingly said, hey, here's a ton of private personal information about my me. Try not to mess it up. I, I was always too skeptical. I was always too, why do you want this information? It so, can't so be for I good purposes. I kind of looked at it from the other end, which was I think people have, I think for years and years and years, people have just sort of presumed that nothing on Facebook was public, was private. Right, that's and, correct. And therefore just sort of treated it as a public forum. If you were smart, that's what you presumed. Or if you were, I should say, knowledgeable, that should have been I your working I even assumption. Think, I don't even think beyond that. So like I've heard people say things like, I don't use Facebook. I wouldn't say that on Facebook Messenger because I don't want it to be public. Right. And of course, that's Facebook right. Messenger isn't public. I mean, you know, technically, Facebook can... can but anybody can long, screenshot but, and anybody can... Uh, yeah, well, no, it's it. more like they, people thought it was as public as stuff on their, new, on their public profile. And I when I joined Facebook in, I forget when it launched in the UK, but... Everyone's profile was public. I mean, it was public if you were to, if to like if you were in the London network, right? So and anyone could join the London network. So it was public. And then so there was a period of like a year when like everybody I'd been at school and university with had a profile on Facebook, and it was public, and I could go and look. And then everyone kind of turned the privacy things on. Um, but I, I just and even then it's not full. It's I don't pretty feel weak. like you would say stuff on Facebook that you expect to be secret. Uh, 100%. I that's what I'm getting at, and I don't think many people ever actually thought that. Which comes again to my point about sort of unresolved feelings. You can kind of you can go to the extreme and say um, everything on Facebook should have been completely private, and everyone should have understood that, and everyone you know. Well, like, that's not realistic. But either. I don't think that's actually very realistic. I think it was much more kind of nuanced and fuzzy than that. Now, no, I think you could argue everything in a WhatsApp group should be private, but I think that's a very different kind of form to posting a, on your newsfeed. But when I ask people, um, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes you have to come at the discussion from an oblique angle. And I like to use radio as an example. I ask people, what is radio sell? And invariably they say advertising. And that's the wrong answer. The advertisers are the buyers. Radio sells an audience. And Facebook, more or less, has the same business model. So I find this interesting. There's a sort of there's a common meme, even kind of in the tech industry, where people say Facebook sells your information. 
No, they sell and, you as a part of an audience. Well, it's interesting because in a, in a literal sense, if you're an advertiser on Facebook, you don't get given a zip file of right. the profile of everybody who saw that. So in a literal sense, it's just not true. In a kind of a metaphorical sense, well, they're sort of they're selling the fact that they know, like even a kind of a metaphorical sense, that kind of struggles me. I struggle with that as a statement. Um, but I think the fact that people have those conversations reflects, again, sort of unresolved feelings about how we should think about this stuff. It's the same with this idea that's going around now that all of Facebook's problems can be blamed on the ad model. And you think, well, if they had a subscription model, would they not be have a, had a developer platform would you not have been posting your personal stuff to your news feed like why would that have made any difference and you would you would still have the same opportunity for apps to come in and scrape that data before they close the barn door yeah and i mean i, I was talking about this with somebody i think who's a, on, on twitter he's somebody who's had a, a journalism sort of head of a journalism school and they posted like an explanation of what cambridge analytica had been doing in fact this was three weeks ago uh-huh and it's, it's just it was interesting simply that they were three weeks on, we're still having people are still writing explanations of what happened because it's all sort of fuzzy and opaque and no one quite understands what it it's means. It's complex and people like simple narratives with mm. definable good guys and bad guys. That exactly. makes it easier to, to do. Nuance sort of gets lost on, on cable television, to say the least. All right, let's talk about some of your favorite technologies. Autonomy of fill-in-the-blank, autonomous cars, autonomous... Uh, uh, whatever. How do we, how do you see the development of AI and autonomous everything? Have and, you got another hour? Um, <laughs> I do. I don't know if we no, have the I, studio. I, I, I do. So I think. What can we say about this? So first of all, the reason that we're talking about autonomous cars now is because of what we call AI, which really means this new technology called machine learning or technology that just started working called machine learning, which offers the prospect that a bunch of problems around autonomous cars might be solvable in a way that they really didn't seem to be easily solvable before. So in that sense, you could say autonomy is a spin-off of machine learning or the, break, the, the fact that we're interested in autonomy is a spin-off in machine learning, but there's all sorts of other stuff that machine learning does as well. As we go to autonomy, um, the sort of the way I, I kind of talk about this is I, I have a slide with a picture of a horseless carriage from like 1905. Right. And it's a carriage with a, no horse, but otherwise it's, nothing's changed. <laughs> and I think that's what I hear when people say driverless car, that you've taken the steering wheel out maybe, but like nothing else has changed and it will still drive around like it will, like autonomous cars mean cars that drive like people, but without making mistakes or uh -huh. breaking the speed limit. And that's just a really short-sighted way of thinking about this. I think there's kind of two kind of building blocks to think about. The first is you can, if you have, when we have a fully autonomous world in n decades, 20, 30, 40 years, depending on what you think the S-curves will look like. Um, and of course, you, you have periods where some places will be much, go much quicker. So like you might, you might say Manhattan is autonomous only in the week in 2030 or something. Right. Um, but at that point, there's no accidents. Well, certainly much less. Well, no, no. Well, basically fewer. no accidents because all the accidents are caused by human error. And you have much less congestion because you don't have traffic waves. You don't have accidents which cause a third of congestion right. or something. Um, you can have vehicles on freeways driving at 100 miles an hour, two feet apart from each other. So you radically change what congestion looks like. You change, radically change what the vehicles look like. So you could have a vehicle that will never, you know, if you're calling an on-demand vehicle in Manhattan, it will not go over 20 miles an hour. It could be a golf cart. Right. Um, if you're going to go to JFK, then you would send a different vehicle. And so you can radically redesign the vehicle in the same way that when we got rid of the horse, you radically redesigned the vehicle. And you can also radically redesign the city or change your assumptions about the city in the same way that we did when we got rid of the horse. Um, except that you're no longer trying to dis dis design a city that will constrain the 19-year-old guy in a souped-up Chevy Camaro 
um, you're designing a city based on you can create rules. You can tell the cars where to go and what they can do and not do. You can have dynamic real-time road pricing. You can say, do you want to pay a lot to get there in 15 minutes or are you willing to pay less to get there in 30 minutes? You can tell the cars at any given instant which roads they should be taking and how fast they should be going. And so what you have is like a change in the structure of a city that has more in, a lot in common with like the way the city changes as a result of the car. Um, kind of the example I often give, which works well since we're in Manhattan, is imagine if you live in Brooklyn and it's November and you want to go to that cool new restaurant in Manhattan. Okay, how are you going to get there? Well, you could walk 10 minutes in the rain to the subway station. Nah. You could get a cab. You could, well, presuming you can get a cab. Presuming you can get a cab, okay, it's going to cost you, what, $20, $30 each way? Mm -hmm. You could drive. Then one of you can't drink on the way back, and you're going to have to park, and you have to pay for parking, and it'll take you 20 minutes to find a place to park. Yeah, let's not go out to that place. Okay, now go to a fully autonomous world. You raise your watch. You say, hey, Alexa, I need a car. The Nipod that's around the block stops outside your door within 30 seconds. There is no congestion. The pod just takes you there. It drops you off outside the door. Um, if it's your pod, um, then it goes and waits for you somewhere where parking is cheap or it waits for you somewhere else. If it's an on-demand pod, it immediately starts driving other people around, so there's no parking. Remember all, and then you can go home and you can drink as much as you like. I mean, remember all those, those photographs of European and East Coast cities from before cars, and you think, well, the streets are all twice as wide because you don't have cars parked down both sides of the street? That's what we could go back to. And so you have like kind of radical change in how we think about what a city is. Therefore, in what does a gas station mean, very obviously, but also what does big box retail mean? Where are you willing to shop? What does your commute look like? You know, today, so I live in San Francisco, which calls itself a city, and I work in Menlo Park, which is an office park. 45 minutes drive south if there's not much traffic. Um, I should say an hour. I'll admit to 45 minutes south. Um, now, supposing there really is no traffic, well, then I can get there in half an hour. But supposing I'm able to read instead of drive, I might be able to live further away and have, spend longer in the car because I don't need to just sit there staring at the road all day. So where do you live? Where do you commute? Where does retail go? All those sorts of changes that happen, like the stuff that happened as a result of cars, which is basically what I'm talking about. Like There's this great saying that it was easy to predict mass ownership of cars, but hard to predict Walmart. It's hard to predict drive through ATMs. Like mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, those second and third order consequences that will flow out of this stuff. Let's talk about smart fill in the blanks, smart homes, smartphones, smart cars, smart speakers. What is it about the um, the preface smart that suddenly everybody wants to move in that direction? Um, so software, software so enabled. Four, okay, so three or four blocks to talk about here. The first block is smartphone supply chain. One and a half billion smartphones sold last year. All of those chips are available as like a fire hose of stuff to make stuff with. So before smartphones, if you wanted to put computing into something, you had to use PC components. Mm -hmm. So an ATM is a PC. Um, but those are big and they're heavy and they need mains power. They need power and so on. Smartphone components, much cheaper, much smaller, much lighter. So suddenly you can make a connected door lock and like you can get the parts um, really easily. Um, plus um, ubiquitous internet, plus machine learning means that like a camera can actually be able to like tell if there's something moving or not. So you've got all this stuff, suddenly this stuff will start working. I think the best analogy for this is like, our grandparents could have told you how many electric motors they owned. There was one in the car, 
They had a vacuum cleaner. There was one in the fridge. They owned maybe five electric motors in total. Like there was only one electric motor in the car, the starter motor. That was it. Today, who has a clue how many electric motors are in your car? There's like 20. And if you tell your grandfather that you can press a button to adjust your wing mirror, he'd hit you on the back of the head. But that, that's just how it worked because the te- that's just how the technology got deployed. Mm-hmm. The same thing in your home. There was a period when everything was going to have a DC motor. Now everybody has you like you have an you have a microwave you maybe have a toaster you may have a kettle you have a blender nobody has all of those things everyone in East Asia has a rice cooker everyone in the UK has a kettle in America you maybe don't have a kettle but you have a coffee machine um, but nobody has an electric carving knife and so what happens is like there are those underlying components as cheap commodities we're in this period of trying to work out what you should do with them and how they should all get plugged together and should they all be the same system or not should they all talk to alexa or not everything and then you've got like the industrial logic so like somebody the samsung board sat down and said everything we sell must have the samsung voice assistant because then people will be more likely to buy the samsung fridge because it talks to the samsung dishwasher and it talks to the samsung this um How's that working out? Well, then you so it's great you see this at CES because you can see like the fridge people thought this was a fantastic. I mean, metaphorically speaking, the fridge people thought this is a fantastic idea. The dishwasher people are like, "God damn it! Okay, we'll put the voice assistant in the dishwasher." But who needs to speak but, to but the dishwasher? What? But a that and b they want to sell it to people who also own an LG fridge and a Sub Zero fridge. So they've got the Samsung voice assistant and they've got HomeKit and they've got. Alexa in it because they need to sell dishwashers. They don't care about the group strategy. Right. It's like when every Sony product had a memory stick. And there was some, and like the Sony group had said everything has got to have a, have a memory stick. And some bits of Sony thought this is great. And some bits were like, God damn it. Um, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? And as with the electric carving knife versus the blender, like some of this stuff will make sense and some of it won't. It would be quite nice to be able to say to my oven, um, okay, preheat the oven to 350 degrees. As, As opposed to, to having to learn it, the interface. You go over and walk over and touch it. Right. I have my apartment. I have an infrared sensor in the bathroom. I walk into the bathroom. The light comes on. It's fantastic. My parents hate it because they get up at four o'clock in the morning. Um, and so they, they don't want, want the light to come on. I think it's Yeah, great. but can't you program that No, because it's not anything. It's just a, literally it is just a dumb IR sensor from 40 years ago. So, so here's where the smart world starts to get more interesting. So I have a long, twisty driveway because our house is set off the main road. And we have lights along it. And the first phase was having a switch that put the lights on and put the lights off. And then the next phase was having a timer that has the lights go on at 7 p.m. and off at 11 p.m. Okay. And, but the problem with that is 7 p.m. is light sometimes of the year and dark. Yeah, I think some... I saw this house in <clears throat> Sopranos once. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. It's a contemporary house. But the, the new switch that is literally going in this weekend is built into the light switches you can set your latitude and that lets whatever you set as your light going on 30 minutes after sunset will change throughout the year regardless and you don't have to deal with it so that's our sort of smart application it's of like, software. You know, our light, we don't have any, you know, your, your phone changes its clock when the time zone changes. Automatically, Automatically. right. It pings the satellite and so, gets so it. I think there's a, there's a kind of question of where will the complexity sit. And this is like the electric carving knife. There will be stuff that just doesn't make sense. The other well, extreme, you do, electric carving knives have been around for decades. Yeah, and they now. never worked. The other, the other oh, extreme, really? so, well, some people have an electric carving knife. Yeah, I could show knife. you where they took a chunk out of my, okay, my well, finger. It yeah, worked fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> The the other extreme is like the other, the other way to think about this is is this old saying that um, basically a computer should never ask a question that it ought to be able to work out on itself 
by yeah. its by itself. And that used to mean like you plug the printer in, the computer should know what the printer is. It shouldn't ask you what printer it is. Mm-hmm. Um, then it means your phone doesn't ask where you are when you call a car because it's got GPS and it knows. Then it means like the light should know what the time zone is, so the light should just go on and off. Right, that's right. And the chair, the, the tension point on all of those is: is it actually more hassle to configure the thing to do that? Sometimes it is. Sometimes, sometimes it, it is. Isn't. Sometimes it isn't. So my beef about Siri, which was the leading voice app to begin with, before um, Alexa began to eat its lunch, is asking it questions that it should, from the context, be able to figure out. Mm. This is just ping a database, ping a location um, uh, software, ping something. It has access to all that stuff, so this, and so yet this it is can't a, So do this it. is a different sense of the word smart. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about voice for a minute. Okay. Um, so we have this thing called machine. So, okay, the right way of putting this. So when you talk to a computer, there's three things that are going on. Step one is it is taking the audio waveform uh-huh. and turning that into text. So it's just transcribing it and turning it into words. Which and, I think is basic math and... and well, no, it was... It, and this is something where it used to work okay like three quarters of the time. I mean, right. I remember you remember using dictation apps like 20 years National, ago. National, uh, actually speaking. So, yeah, exactly. Right. They were terrible. It, it sort of worked three quarters oh, of the time. They were awful. No more. And it would get better like half a point every year. Right. And machine learning comes along and it goes from working three quarters of the time to working 95% of the time, 96, 97%, 98% of the time. And so mm-hmm. machine learning gives you this radical change in that. It also, then there's a second piece, which is you need to go from the text to a structured query. You need to actually work out what the verb and the noun is and what is this asking, which is a completely different computational sure. problem. Um, and so when you talk to a computer, there's two very almost unrelated things going on. Machine learning also, this is called natural language processing. Right. Um, machine learning also made that work way, 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 way better. Um, then you have the third problem, which is, okay, I've created this structured query. Do I have anything to give it to? And, and you should have in well, ubiquitous so internet. Is, so this is the problem, um, which is what you've actually got here is an IVR. You've got a voice tree. Press one for this, press two for that. Uh-huh. Machine learning means you can now, and we've, we've all kind of experienced this thing, you phone the airline and they say, tell us what you want to ask about. And there's only 15 things you could ask. So they can recognize it, the text, and then they can work out what you're asking about, and they can route you to the right number inside the They're company. They're pretty awful also. But what we don't have, machine learning gives us a way of automating the transcription and getting the natural language processing to work. Uh-huh. But you might ask it any one of three or four million things. And so effectively what I, what I mean when I say a structured query is you can fill in a dialog box by talking to the computer mm-hmm. and the computer can work out which dialog box you are asking for. But somebody has to have made the dialog box by hand. Okay. So, you now, know, now if, if, you're, if you're a phone company well, so or, if, or if you're a phone manufacturer and you have a few million or maybe even a few billion queries but how to use as your frame of reference. But so you can make the top 50 categories or the top 1,000 categories. Well, And if you're going to ask something the really... Is the curve gets really, really steep really mm-hmm. quickly, and you don't know what you can ask. So you can ask... You can get the top five things, and you can say you can ask for weather, you uh-huh. can ask for timer, you can ask for unit conversion, you can ask for the time in a different city, you can ask me to play music, and it'll get the music right roughly half of the time. This is, you know, you ask it to play an album, and it plays you like a weird cover of it because right. it, it doesn't understand. Um, but then there's like, what are the thousand things you might ask your EA to do? And how many of those get really complex really quickly? 
Like, can you rebook my meeting this afternoon? Okay, that's not a simple query. That's like 500 things that you need to know right, how to do in order to do that. Right, that's And so the problem is, as I said, what you have with a voice assistant is you have an IVR that will always understand what you asked. Machine learning means it will always correctly route you to the right number. Mm. What it doesn't have is a way to have somebody at that number automate, it, or automate what that person at that number will do. And so you have to create those dialogue boxes one by one. So I'll give you an example. Siri learns how to do cricket. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Somebody at Apple sat down and wrote the cricket right. module. Okay, now Siri can do hurling. Okay, well, somebody at Siri at Apple had to sit down and write that. And then Siri can do call me a Uber. Right, well, someone at Uber had to write that. And then it can do um, tell me whether my flight is delayed. Right, someone had to write that. And every single one of those, some human being has to sit down and spend an afternoon writing those. And the problem with this is it doesn't scale. And in a sense, if you could do that, you'd have made HAL 9000. And HAL 9000 is not the aggregate of like somebody sitting and writing those one at a time. That, that's some other thing. That's machine learning and big data and, and a bunch and, of things. And so that's the gap. You know, we have a way to get the transcription and the NLP to work completely accurately. What we don't have is a way to get to automatically make a system that could answer any, any question you could possibly answer. How, we have how to get a human being to think of what all of those would be. So how, that is a description of... So let me answer this question another way. So imagine in the 19th century, someone tries to make a mechanical horse. There's no, I mean, you've seen the pattern drawings of sure. these things. There's no law of physics that says you can't make a mechanical horse. It's just that the degree of complexity required to get that to work was impossible in the 19th century, and arguably it's impossible now. I mean, Boston Dynamics are now trying to do this. Pretty close. But yeah. that's like 150 years later. Right. Um, and, so, and, and so what you can actually do is you could make a bicycle in a steam engine, and a bicycle is a lot simpler than a horse, and it can't do everything that a horse can do, but it turned out that was kind of useful anyway. Mm -hmm. The same thing with, with AI. What people tried to do with AI until a couple of years ago was they would try and write rules. So if you wanted to recognize a cat, what you do is you do edge detection, and you do texture analysis, and you try and make something that looks for two eyes in roughly the right place relative to two ears, and you try and make something that tries to look for legs. And hopefully, and you try and work out how the hell are we going to tell the difference between a cat and a dog. And it would sort of work, like three quarters of the time. Mm -hmm. It would never really work for the same reason that the mechanical horse would sort of work, but never actually work. And then what machine learning does is say, no, 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 no. You give it a million pictures labeled right. cat and a million pictures labeled dog, and you let the machine write the rules. That's what machine learning means. The machine generates a million if statements that will allow it to calculate this difference between a cat picture and a dog picture with 92.7% accuracy. And that gives us a breakthrough of a whole class of problem. It solves image recognition. It solves speech. It solves language. It solves a whole kind of level of pattern recognition. What it doesn't do is give you a human 10-year-old. It doesn't give you general intelligence. Mm -hmm. Basically, what you've built is you've built an enormous spreadsheet with a million if statements meshed together and linked together. And you can give this spreadsheet a picture of a cat, and it, a picture, and it will tell you whether there's a cat in it or not. And that's all it will do. So another way of thinking about this is like we have this fantasy of domestic robots that will walk around your home and do the housework. We have domestic robots. It's called a washing machine. Mm-hmm. That's what machine learning gives you. It gives you a washing machine. It gives you a washing machine that can recognize family pictures. It gives you a washing machine that can tell me, is there strange behavior happening on this network? It gives you a washing machine that can recognize handwriting. It gives you a washing machine that can do X, but it can only do that one thing. It can't do anything else. And it can't clean your, it can't wash your dishes. And so that's what machine learning gives. It gives you this step change in capability 
So one of the ways, I'm, kind of, I'm sort of giving you a stack of metaphors here, I think a really good way to think about what machine learning gives us is it's like thinking about relational databases. So relational databases give you this amazing step change in what you can do with computers. Suddenly you can say, show me X by Y. Like Bloomberg only it would not exist without this. SAP would not exist without this. Just-in-time supply chains would not exist without this. Totally transformed our world. But everything you use now is a relational, but it's not AI. Huh. Quite or, or it is, but it's like, if it's AI, then everything is AI. It's that, not, that's you, it. It, it doesn't get you HAL 9000. Let me jump in to some of my favorite questions. Tell us the most important thing the people who work with you don't know about you. I hate personal questions. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know. I, find, I kind of looked at this, this email. This I'm puzzled by these kind of questions. I don't know. What is it the people who work with me have no idea? They probably don't know I have a dog. There you go. Well, because sometimes it's revealing. Some people have told us deep, dark secrets from decades ago, and it occasionally... <laughs> so there is, a, there is a joke that the most secure form of encryption is anything you say in the second hour of a podcast. That's exactly so correct. So here we are. I can say it now, and it right. will be completely Nobody, private. Right. <laughs> it's you, me, and a handful of friends that are hearing it. Nobody else is going to hear it. Um, tell us about your early mentors. Who affected the way you looked at technology and, and venture investing? I, I don't know. I would say it's not really about how I look at technology. It's more sort of mental processes and ways of thinking about things and ways to try and answer questions. Mm -hmm. And so the stuff I did at university, you know, people talking to me about medieval history, and it's not, this is, no, it's not that didn't happen, this didn't happen. It's more, okay, how do you actually understand what we're trying to think about here? So, like, I remember, like, my first or second, like, you know, the first, the way Cambridge history works is you do an essay, you get given an essay title and a reading list and you come back in a week with your essay and that's it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go to lectures. Um, and so I think my first essay was the one that, of course, everyone screws up. And it was like, was the king of England more or less powerful after 1066? And, you know, I gave the wrong answer. And my professor said, look, you have to think about this as what does it actually mean to be powerful? And power is the ability to get people to do something they don't want to do. And so you can give all this other stuff about all the sophistication of the Anglo-Saxon monarchy and they had their own much more sophisticated coinage and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Magna Carta notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. no, well, that was 200 years later. But like, who is more, is he actually more powerful? Look, William the Conqueror can tell people to do stuff and they have to do it. And the king, the, Saxon, England, the king before the conquest, king of England was like, yeah, no one really paid any attention to what he said except for the coinage, like this complicated coinage. So my point is like, it's not so much that someone told me how this is how to think about technology. It's more how to sort of think systematically and try and break up problems and try and look for piece components and try and look, kind of look at things in those kinds of ways. Quite fascinating. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, technology, or what have you. Um, I don't know. I'm sort of I, I'm always reading and I'm always buying books and those two processes are completely independent. I read almost no business books or technology books, uh -huh. um, partly because I feel that all business books are basically a short magazine article padded out to <laughs> 350 pages. There, there are some authors in particular I can name. Well, that, well, the great that's th their entire over. Well, if you, I feel like if you've written 15 business books on the same theme, then like you're either a very bad writer or a very good writer, depending on or, your objective. Or a very good marketer. Well, that too, perhaps. Um, I don't know. I think I read things things that intrigue me and interest me. The last thing I read was the Iliad, which I'd never read before. Uh -huh. um, Wait, and, a history major never read the Iliad in college? Uh, well, so there's this great line from Italo Calvino where he says the number of, something like the number of essential works is so great that nobody, no matter how much they're reading, has read more than a fraction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, re literature is a sample. You can't read all the books. 
there was a period when you could have seen all the movies. Now you can't see all the movies. You can't listen to all the music. You just have to take samples and take do things that stimulate you or make you think in interesting ways, particularly things that aren't about what you work on. Yeah. So give us another example from that's that's newer than 2,000 years old. Um, I don't know. I just By read, the way, I, this is everybody's favorite question. The one qu- I get well, emails I about books, this I more than anything. I read books and then I can't remember what it is, what, what, what the last book I read was. Um, I, what stands out to you? What has really resonated The, the, the Iliad you? really stood out for me. That was kind of a couple of weeks ago. I read this fascinating book about um, medieval manuscripts called Encounters with Fascinating Manuscripts or something like that by uh-huh. a college librarian in, in Cambridge. And it's one of these sort of new kind of genre of books which kind of look like a big hardback nonfiction book, but they're all in color all the way through, which is something to do with the development of printing technology which is there's, there's loads of books that have color illustrations all the way through which is that aren't art books which is kind of interesting and it's just sort of about how books evolved so there's this kind of fan, fas, fascinating observation that books or codices used to be rectangular because you made them out of papyrus and right. so you would lay your sheets you know you lay the, 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 the strips of plant kind of crossways like plywood and you'd make them square shaped because you had the, the, the strips were all the same length so that produced a square shaped piece of papyrus and then you move to um What's it called? Um, animal skin. Uh-huh. What's the word? I've forgotten the word. My mind's gone blank now, too. Um, um, you move to um, parchment, which okay. is made from, from animal skins. And there's this great line, animals tend to be oblong. <laughs> <laughs> so you get oblong pieces, and then you fold them up, and that produces an oblong book. And so when you go from papyrus to parchment, you go from square books to oblong books. And here we are, 1,500 years later, and the books are still oblong. And that's just a, a residual of the earlier technology of parchment. Yeah, exactly. I think those sorts of, I mean, it, coming back to, you know, why is this interesting? I just think those sorts of how did stuff happen and why did the, what's the thread of causation and how things can be completely mm-hmm. random is sort of interesting. And how do these, does, does this stuff change how we think about it? So on the flight here, I read a book about kind of lighting, te- the evolution of lighting technology in the 18th and 19th century. As we go from candles to light, to kind of lamps that hold a candle and produce five times more light. How we got to now? Or to some... gas lights, mm-hmm. to, to um, earlier electric lights, which used, weren't very bright and then used tungsten filament. And, and so there's the evolution of light. This observation that stuck in my mind and I ne- now need to go and check which is an assertion that Dutch 17th, 16th, 17th century Dutch pictures have windows but no curtains huh. because why would you keep the light out? Everybody wants the light in You that, want the that's... light in and of course as we all sort of know light was really expensive and used to be a luxury and now it's not but I just thought that was a really revealing way of thinking about how your whole sense of the world changes when lighting is cheap why would you have curtains? That, that's quite fascinating. The book, How We Got to Now, has their six inventions, one of which is lighting, and the process of watching the price plummet over, over the centuries is really, is really fascinating. All well, right. the, the, the interesting thing that comes out of that is that when light was expensive, the status symbol was to stay up all night. Huh. So rich people would get up at lunchtime and go to bed at like five in the morning because they could afford to, because they could afford candles. Everybody else gets up with the crack at the Exactly. What do you do for fun? What do you do to relax outside of the office? In San Francisco? <laughs> um, so I have a seven-year-old and a dog, uh-huh. and so my time is not my own. Unde- understood completely. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone who just graduated college that was interested either in a career in technology or venture capital? So I I sort of struggle to give advice partly because my career has been a sort of a series of, a series of random lurches and kind of companies going out of business. <laughs> so yeah. 
<laughs> I won't apply for a job at Bloomberg, don't worry. Um, I think there's a the only thing I've sort of observed is there is um, there is the kind of things that you are good at doing and the kind of mental processes that you are good at. Are you good at people or not? Are you good at process and project management and making sure everything gets done right? Or is that not what interests you? Are you good at trying to kind of explain at, at empathizing with people are you good at trying to explain and discuss and argue with people and persuade people um what are the things that you're good at doing and those are not necessarily what was your degree in and they don't necessarily specific to to jobs so like i have contemporaries who went off and become what in england we call a barrister which is uh -huh. basically a lawyer who only goes to court in england the law is split solicitors do the paperwork barristers go to court a litigator is what we exactly call that's all here. but that's all that effectively is and it's a completely different profession yep um and i have contemporaries who are barristers and you know i could have done that i could have you know gone and argued for a living and you know you kind of you go and you look at the problem and you pull it apart and you work out what story to tell and how to place that into the law and try and persuade the judge and the jury um so in a sense, I have those skill sets. On the other hand, I look at these contemporaries and it says, you know, um, Charlie is probably the leading up and coming advocate in complex offshore maritime insurance disputes. And I think, well, that doesn't I, sound like fun. I hope he's paid a lot for that. <laughs> but he's interested in the argument and the explaining and the discussion. The fact that it's insurance is kind of neither here nor there, really. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you have to just kind of work out, well, what is it? The th what are the things that fascinate you? And what are the kind of mental processes that fascinate you? And, and our final question, what is it that you know about the world of technology that you wish you knew 20 years ago? You when mean you I graduated like, no, other Cambridge. than like buy Apple or something? No, no, nothing <laughs> like that. that. That's, you know, anyone could look at prices 20 yeah. years ago and said, hey, buy Amazon, buy Apple. Mm. But generally, in terms of thinking in, uh, in terms of broad processes, what would have helped you early in your career had you figured it out sooner? So that actually might be a good way of me framing my technology determinism piece. Mm -hmm. Because it's a sort of, I mean, the other thing people talk about, about a lot in venture capital is pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. That this sort of looks like things that will work. This looks like things that, are, that never work and why. And of course, the things that never work, eventually they do work and that's where there's a $100 billion outcome. So that's also an interesting kind of fruitful conversation. But it's sort of understanding those patterns of, okay, you have to think, okay, how is this going to fit within this ecosystem? This is, what is the timing for this? It's those sorts of mechanics of the process um, that are interesting, I think. That, that's quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Benedict Evans of Andreessen Horowitz. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or SoundCloud, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 200 such conversations we've had over the past four years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put this podcast together each week. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.